Any physician who's listening right now, did you wake up this morning saying, hey, I hope my patients have a terrible experience in my hospital or my ER? No hands are going to go up because nobody wakes up that way. But if I asked everybody listening, hey, have you as either a patient or as a loved one of a patient had a terrible experience at some point in your life in healthcare, 100% of the time, hands are going to go up. And I'm fascinated by that dichotomy. That is the voice of today's guest, Dr. Justin Bright, and you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. If you see patients for a living and find it's not always easy being a doc, we get you and we've got your back. My name is Rob Orman. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, 10 of those in medical education as a professional podcaster, and now... As a certified coach, I help physicians get unstuck, recalibrate their work-life balance, and find innovative ways to solve challenges. We created Stimulus Podcast to give you tools to find more fulfillment in your life and work, and do it all with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. On today's show, the voice you heard in that open there, someone I would classify as a true believer in what they do and what they support, Dr. Justin Bright. MD, okay, so MD, you know that, CPXP, that was a new one for me, coming after a name, I had to look it up, Certified Patient Experience Professional. Justin is a nationally recognized patient experience expert and consultant. He's an attending physician and the assistant medical director for patient experience in the Department of Emergency Medicine, Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Now, you might think, whatever, okay, I get it, but that is a shop with over 100,000 emergency visits per year. (laughs) That is a lot of experience to be had. And if you like what you hear from Justin, we will have a link to his website, his patient experience podcast in the show notes. But before we get into this, I want to take a moment to start the process of distinguishing between patient experience, the topic for this episode, and patient satisfaction. And we will get into that a little bit in our chat with discussion, you know, the distinction between the two. But I just want to lay down a little bit of framework here because there is a distinction. So I've got a bit of a rant, maybe a polemic, call it what you want. And what motivates this is I, I regularly hear from listeners and clients lamenting the state of the existence of patient satisfaction surveys. Now, I started clinical practice right when these things were becoming part of the fabric of medicine in the U.S. And watching the arc of how these have played out and, you know, receiving hundreds of them myself, except for some outliers where they can be a force for positive change, I have found them to be a net negative. And what do I mean by that? Well, first off, there's, of course, statistical problems with these surveys. I mean, that, that's, you know, if, if you get these things and talk about these things, it's one of the main problems that's pointed out, where there is very likely bias in that the outliers fill them out. You know, people who love the experience, people who hate the experience, that's who generally fills these things out. And I would tell you in no uncertain terms that it is the people who hated their experience for whatever reason that get the attention of the hospital. You know, the people that love their experience, well, you know, maybe that's an email that gets sent around the department or posted up on the wall, but it has minimal long-term impact. But the negative ones, I assure you, have long-term impact and you got to answer for each one of those. And another problem with the statistics or the sampling is 
who gets surveyed, at least for the emergency department, it's discharged patients. See them, treat them, release them. It is not the admitted patients you spent six hours with, you know, with five family meetings, consultations, transfers, etc. Not that it's a problem to survey discharge patients. That's great. But missing out on probably where you're putting most of your effort. And this is just the tip of the iceberg with the sampling issues and skew of respondents. But let's just say for the sake of argument that the surveys are actually perfect. Everyone gets one. Everyone fills them out at what, whatever. They're written really well. Important metrics are identified. So let's just say they're perfect. But then what happens? Now let's get back to reality. But then what happens is every month or so, you get your department's satisfaction scores and you see where you lie compared to not only your group, but also the rest of the country in similar sized hospitals with similar characteristics. And I will say that there is something noble with the intent here because it's to give some attention to the experience of the patient. That's awesome. But what underlies this is actually not awesome. Reimbursement is tied to patient satisfaction. I think that's one reason why the C-suite cares so much. But how these things are used, they are often used for advertising as a merit badge for the hospital. Okay, whatever, great. But problem I have here is that when individual physicians or clinicians underperform, the general message is you better get your patient satisfaction scores up. That's it. Get them up. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's a nebulous threat. Sometimes it's direct. You know, direct as in if you remain low, you're going to lose your job. That's it. There's no support here. Or maybe if there is support in general, it's left to the clinician to figure out what to do. I mean, what are they supposed to do? They've been practicing in a certain way and may have blind spots, may have gaps in perception or communication or emotional intelligence, or there's just something that they do that they're not aware of that really rubs patients the wrong way. Like, what am I doing? I feel like I'm doing a great job. You know, there's some gap between the patient's expectations and the clinician's communication. It's not, hey, let's, let's help you get better here. It's you get better figured out. And I'll say that departments with excellent culture often do well with these things. Departments with a toxic or a shambolic culture often do not. But back to the individual, when someone is underperforming here, generally the response from the hospital or the department can be punitive, either overtly or tacitly. Now, maybe an action plan is put into place by the administration, but often those are adversarial. It is the exception rather than the rule that an institution takes it on themselves to make positive changes either in culture or to support clinicians in a uniformly positive way to help them take a look at what's going on and work on that or for the hospital to take a look at what's going on systemically. And add to this something Mike Weinstock said a few episodes ago in our episode, Do No Harm, that I've been thinking about is that increased patient satisfaction is associated with worse outcomes, higher healthcare costs, increased mortality rates, more likely to have opioid addiction. And of course, these are associations. Not, there's no clear cause here, so just things are associated. But what's happening? What is, what is this? Now, a recent New England Journal article had this to say, quote, researchers speculate that physicians whose compensation is tied to patient satisfaction are more likely to give in to patients who request medically unnecessary treatments that may have adverse effects. 
It's also purported that physicians may be less inclined to tell patients things they don't want to hear, such as, you need to lose weight, or it's critical you quit smoking. And then there's the gaming of the system. Long ago, I worked in a hospital that wanted to boost patient satisfaction. Great. Okay. Making efforts to boost things up, make people satisfied, whatever. Well, maybe it's problematic, but trying to do it on a systemic level. Well, the answer was to put a waterfall in the waiting room. Let me tell you, my friends, scores did not change. Staff did not change. Docs did not change. This is a very highly functioning hospital and emergency department. Things were not bad in the first place, but they did not change. A friend of mine works in a hospital where they remodeled and put in marble floors and a piano player in the lobby, right outside of the emergency department. Other hospitals have designer gowns. I mean, these are things that game the system. Do they have real impact on the experience of the patient? And I'm going to put my nickel down here and say that I find the patient satisfaction process in its current iteration to be contrary to excellence in the practice of medicine. It could be done well. It's a great idea, but it comes down as heavy-handed, disingenuous, and frankly, as we've heard, potentially dangerous. The win here in all this mishigas is changing the frame from patient satisfaction to patient experience. They might sound like the same thing, and, you know, there is, there's overlap in the middle of the Venn diagram, right? Somebody who has an excellent experience is likely to be satisfied, but the why behind them is vastly different. All right, rant complete. Let's get to this, our interview with patient experience expert, Dr. Justin Bright. And I'll say you will hear me refer in this interview to clinical practice in the present tense. I recorded this with Justin when I was still working in the emergency department. So that's what that's all about. Here we go. If you're going to have a wonderful experience at your job, that's going to require an excellent experience with your patients and and an ability to connect with them. It makes everything better. When I hear the term patient experience, I, I don't know that I understand exactly what it means, but when I hear it, I think how we as clinicians or even a healthcare system, but let's just talk about clinicians because that's the audience that we're speaking to. We've become pretty cynical about, I guess you'd say patient-centered projects because of the stick, the Prescani stick. You know, and then there's these moves that are made either by administration or by us, you know, well, I'm going to wear a white coat. I'm going to dress nicer. I'm going to do this. And these moves are not made out of being magnanimous or or out of kindness, but I think more so out of fear and resentment. And then the irony is, can we start resenting the patient? So when I hear that patient experience thing, my first thing is Prescani. And then I say, oh, and then you see these graphs that get handed out each month and then it's, okay, you're not meeting this measure. And it's like, oh my God, it's all negativity directed towards us. I do think it's important to define what I mean by patient experience. And literally that means... Every conceivable touch point, perception, and logistical thing that may happen to a patient during their encounter with healthcare, whether it's their interaction with the parking attendant, the interaction with the barista at the coffee shop in your hospital, the interaction with registration, the first impression they get from the triage nurse, from their interaction with me as a physician or my residents or my students, with radiology, with their access to care, the ease in which they can schedule appointments the ease in which we can communicate results to them. All of that is at the core of what I'm talking about, this intrinsic desire to do better for our patients. 
What you also mentioned, though, are a lot of extrinsic motivators, Rob, that are really important. They may not be important to you and I as physicians, but they're really important to a lot of people in healthcare, and rightly so. Likelihood to recommend, which is a metric that is followed, is really important. It means that they're going to choose my hospital instead of the hospital down the street, which for business purposes does matter. I'm not going to do my job for free. You're not going to do your job for free. And like it or not, the money does come from them choosing my shop over somebody else's shop. Where physicians have a really hard time is they're being inundated with extrinsic motivators from the C-suite, which are well-intended and actually important, and having a hard time kind of filtering that through the hopper and finding the intrinsic value of finding real joy and gratification in helping people, which is why we all got into this game in the first place. And what I have found is, is that For people who go all in on this, for who really employ best practices in connection, communication, empathy, teach back, it saves me time. It makes my encounter significantly better because I'm getting all the feels, right? I'm getting the hugs from the little old ladies and the kisses. I've had patients bring in pizza, send in thank you notes. And I'm not going to the principal's office because I'm not upsetting anybody because I know how to interact. I've put in the work. And as a result, it's actually saving me time having more gratifying experiences at work, so I want to get out of bed and do it again. And it's actually made it a whole lot easier for me to get to the crux of the problem on how to help that patient get what they need. And that's what I mean by patient experience, is that all-encompassing experience. Somebody out there has probably flown Spirit Airlines at some point, and they get you from point A to point B. But normally when I give lectures, as an example, I say, who would ever fly Spirit Airlines again? And no hands ever go up. They just don't, because it's they nickel and dime you, and they make it very obvious that they don't value you. You compare that to another discount airline like Southwest Airlines, and they're very well noted for a wonderful customer experience and very engaged employees. They also got me to point A and point B, but the way in which I experienced it, completely different. In emergency medicine, we look at it really as, well, did you die today? That's really the core product. Did you die? 99% of the time, the answer is no, but the manner in which we deliver that care, the manner in which we explain it to our patients, reduce their fear, help them get access to follow-up whatever it is they need, the manner in which we deliver that makes a world of difference in terms of patient safety, compliance, and yes, even happiness and satisfaction with their experience. Patient experience is the only 100% frequency event that occurs in healthcare. I love that. It's the only 100% frequency event. And you and I discussing before we had this podcast interview have both had recent experiences in healthcare. I mean, we're both physicians and we're both interested in this stuff. And I don't think come across as jerks where the clinician was like so negative and you could tell that they were not engaged. They were not thinking about what's happening with this person as a human being. It was more of how can I just get out of here? And those experiences were so negative. It's interesting also that you talk about likelihood to recommend because I was actually asked shortly after that, oh, I have somebody who needs to get this big thing done at this hospital. And it was even a totally unrelated service. And I said, I would never recommend anyone to that hospital, even though it had nothing to do with the clinician that I saw. It was just like, if that's how the experience is, and actually that experience went over to scheduling and all that. It was just kind of this whole attitude. And this is probably the biggest hospital in the region. I would never refer anybody to them. And it had actually nothing to do with the tests that were done or the healthcare or any of that. Any physician who's listening right now, did you wake up this morning saying, hey, I hope my patients have a terrible experience in my hospital or my ER? No hands are going to go up because nobody wakes up that way. 
But if I asked everybody listening, hey, have you as either a patient or as a loved one of a patient had a terrible experience at some point in your life in healthcare, 100% of the time, hands are going to go up. And I'm fascinated by that dichotomy. And it's never having to do with, oh, Rob didn't order that D-dimer perfectly, or Justin didn't order that troponin when he should have. It all comes down to not being heard, not being attentive to emotion, not being able to effectively navigate all the intricacies of human interaction. And that's what blows my mind. It really comes down to a purposeful choice. That's really what I think the secret sauce is, is a purposeful, intentional choice, no matter what else is going on in our life, that in the minute or or time that you're with your patient, to clear all that off, to make sure that they understand that you really, truly do care about them and value them as a person and want to help them and not as a widget on the assembly line. And that's easier said than done because I think that we're in a very task-driven, high-stakes, high-intensity specialty. I also think that, frankly, the way we've been taught to do history and physicals is completely wrong. It's very algorithmic and causes us to pounce on the first thing that a patient says because we are trying to serve our own agenda of identifying what's wrong, creating a differential, creating a plan, treatment, and get them out. Instead of just asking opening-end questions and listening to what a patient actually has to say, letting them get it out. They're speaking more from an emotional, I need to tell a story standpoint, whereas physicians come at it from a more cognitive, pragmatic, academic standpoint, because that's what we've been taught to do. And I'm starting to believe that we were taught wrong. And it's not fair to us as physicians. We deserve better than this. We deserve to understand how to interpersonally connect and communicate with our patients, because nobody's really ever taught us We take for granted that communication is very easy. It is not. It's frankly the most complex thing that we're ever going to do in our life. But since we've been communicating in some ways, since we've come out of the uterus, we just assume we all know how to do it. And it's not easy. Let's pause for a little recap. Patient experience, the only 100% frequency event that occurs in healthcare. You know, maybe you could think of some others, but it really takes on a whole lot of importance. And we think that our job can be the human being on the other side of that interaction. I mean, none of us, or at least very few of us, start the day hoping that our patients are going to have a crappy experience. I mean, we certainly didn't start our medical training with that mindset. And something to remember that Justin just brought up is that when we're getting information from patients, you know, we can feel like we are mining for facts, trying to extract the important facts, but they are transmitting facts, but more commonly are transmitting emotion, telling a story. It's like any time when emotion and logic meet, there's not always a good overlap with the Venn diagram. So realizing that, all right, this person is upset, they're freaked out by what's happening, that's what they're transmitting. There's going to be some important information. I might be able to guide them to give me that information, but realizing that they need to express that emotion and that story, well, that's going to make them feel like they are being heard and validated and will improve the rest of the interaction and their whole experience. In your travels and your lectures and experience with patient experience, can you identify something that is low-hanging fruit that someone who's listening to this can apply to their next shift as something that universally we think we do really well, but we actually don't do well? First, the power of the pause. When you ask a question, just sit there and listen for the answer before pouncing on the next question again to serve your agenda. Allowing a pause will allow a patient to actually say the things that they want and need to say. 
And if it's after you've delivered some form of information or a question, we'll allow the patient's brain to actually process it and catch up to you. And I think the other low-hanging fruit is getting more comfortable asking an open-ended question in the first place. Instead of, oh, I see you're here for chest pain. It's, what can I do for you today? Particularly, we all know the ones when patients come in that are going to fit into a perfect diagnostic box. We know exactly what we need to do. But we also know in emergency medicine, we get tons of patients with nebulous complaints that just don't really make any sense. And the biggest high-value question I have learned is, what concerns you most today? What are you most afraid of? What do you think needs to happen today? What would you like to see happen today? Asking those questions in an open, welcoming way, not in a way that can seem confrontational, because tone does matter with that question, has helped me get to the crux of the problem so many times, and oftentimes it has nothing to do with the stated chief complaint on the EMR. Asking those questions takes two seconds of my time, and it's helped me so much in terms of understanding what to do, understanding how to help my patient, and getting through it in a painless and efficient way that allows me to deal with everything else going on in my department at the same time. The questions of, you know, what are you most concerned about? That really hits it on because then you are knowing how to connect with this person about their fear. But that question of, you know, what are you hoping is going to happen in your visits today or et cetera, more often than not, the response I get is this incredulous look. I'm hoping you figure out what I have going on. What do you mean? What am I hoping happens here? Even with that answer, I think that there's a reflexive human nature to get defensive with it and be like, well, that was not an answer that really helped me. But it gives you a sense of who your patient is, what they're frustrated with, what they've been dealing with. And for as many times as you get an answer like that, you're going to get a, you know what, I was actually worried that I'm having a stroke, even though what they really have is rotator cuff tendinopathy. Or, hey, I'm really worried that I have a blood clot in my leg because my leg hurts. And if you don't bring that up, if that doesn't come out, then you have no idea how to remanage expectations, retriage their chief complaints, and frankly, reduce their fear and concern. Sometimes it's as easy as a conversation about, I understand why you're concerned that your arm pain could be a stroke because somebody, one of your friends told you that, but I am 100% confident this is your rotator cuff and this is why. Oftentimes that's enough. I do believe that in the traditional H&P, we don't give patients the opportunity to express that. And we don't give ourselves the opportunity to even explore that. And so we end up spinning our wheels doing a bunch of other stuff that's not even really what the patient came for or was concerned about. And then you end up with what we call the doorknob complaint, where you think everything's cool, you've reassured them, you're reaching for the doorknob to leave the room. And they're like, but doc, what about this? And you're like, oh God. And so you have to start all over again, where asking those questions helps so much more than you would believe it does. When you say the doorknob question, I was thinking about this, my last shift, it was like 3 a.m. I was kind of tired and I had a complex patient that I was finishing up with. And I was just walking out, the patient's wife asked me a question. And it was an important question, a really important question about follow-up. And I stopped and I turned around and I looked down at my feet and my feet were still pointed out of the room, but my body was turned towards them. I'm thinking, this is an important question. What message is this sending? And my feet were like locked in quicksand. I was thinking, I should go back and sit down with them and really address this question. But I, in my mind, I'm out the door and I'm just kind of fighting this magnetic force. Reflecting back on that, it would have taken two seconds to go sit back down and readdress that. And I don't know if that actually would have changed anything, but it probably would have made me more engaged and made them feel like I was more engaged with that. What if 
by employing best practice communication skills, you eliminated that issue in the first place and you didn't feel stressed to get to the next room and the next objective because you actually were maximizing that time that you had with the patient at hand and effectively communicating them with them in a way that it was very, very clear what needed to be done and what they wanted to be done instead of having to answer that doorknob thing and turn around and start over and then getting really stressed out about the patient next door or the chart that you have to finish or the recess bell going off or whatever. If you go all in on best practice communication skills in a way that I'm certain most of us don't really employ on a consistent basis, but if you do, it's going to get better for you. It's going to get faster for you. It's going to get more positive for you. And as a byproduct of that, it's going to improve your patient's experience at the same time. Well, let's actually get into some specific communication practices, and we'll start with that case, which is, you know, that's not a bad case. I'm not de-escalating someone. It's just someone who has extra questions. How should I close up that interaction so that it is efficiently done, and then when I walk out of the room, I am legitimately walking out of the room? We're trying to close the deal so you can move on to the next thing, and they can move on. Part of that comes back to teach back, summarize what got done, where they're at, what needs to be done and who they need to follow up with. And not only that, but the more active you can be in ensuring follow-up with somebody is better than coming into a room saying, look, everything's cool. Your tests were fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Go see your PCP. It's a very different discussion than we ruled out all these things. And I may not be able to tell you exactly what's wrong, but I crossed off all these bad guys. And you know, I want you to follow up with this doctor. And I actually took the liberty of making an appointment for you. And I want you to know that things change get worse, or scare you in any way. We are always open. We never close. Come back and let's do it again, and I'm happy to help you. You also need to be willing to say, did we cover everything that you felt needed to be covered today? That is a great line. And 99% of the time, they're going to say, yep, it's all good. That 1%, you need to be willing to get back in, and and it's a safety net for you. It's going to prevent bounce backs. It's going to improve compliance. It's going to prevent complaints and getting called into the principal's office. It's going to prevent all the things that you don't want. So asking that question is a way of checking in with your patient. You need to be willing to do it. It's a purposeful choice to say, do you feel we've talked about everything that you wanted to talk about today? I want to talk about people who are pissed off, but before they're pissed off, I want to prevent them from being pissed off. And one of the things that people get the most angry about is waiting. Now, when you enter a room and a patient has been in triage area for four hours and then had to wait another 45 minutes in the room to see you, we're seeing them 10 seconds after we just saw our last patient, but they've been waiting there. I guess you could say experience is much different. And I've read, and I might be wrong on this, but I've read that your first phrase to them as you walk in is, thank you for waiting, rather than what, what I was taught was, I'm sorry you've been waiting. Now, aren't those kind of the same thing, acknowledging the wait? When you come into a room and say, I'm sorry for your wait, some physicians don't like that because they don't feel like the wait is their fault. They feel like they've been working as hard as they can to see as many patients as they can, as quickly as they can. And it's a systems issue. Oh, there's no beds upstairs. They need to be discharging people. Or we're getting all these low acuity BS patients that don't belong in our ER, which is a whole other topic that I'm obsessed with. They don't feel like they should have to apologize for it. And so all I'm doing is trying to you know, make lemonade out of lemons by turning it into a positive and saying, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. I appreciate your weight, but you are now my primary focus. 
It's validating that they waited to see you. It's, again, acknowledging that they're a human with other things to do than be in your emergency department. And it takes all the passive aggressiveness out of the room. If you don't defuse that bomb before you get into your encounter, it's going to just sit there and fester the entire encounter and may sidetrack you from what you're really trying to accomplish. Thank you for waiting, or I appreciate your wait. Oh, I love this for many reasons, but one of them is that years ago, I heard a patient satisfaction, you could call it a patient experience lecture from one of the luminaries in medicine who said that he always apologizes to the patient for the wait, even if that patient was just seated in the room a second ago. And I thought, really? Are we really doing this? I mean, it felt so disingenuous to me. And I also like Justin's phrasing because I like the framing of gratitude rather than apology and starting out that patient interaction. As I think about it, you walk in and you say, thank you for waiting. And even as I say that right now, I feel like I've got it together. I'm feeling well-kempt, I'm focused, I'm present. When I say, hey, I'm sorry you've been waiting, which is what I've said for so many years, the mental image I have for myself, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you're fine with it. I have this like, I'm like disheveled. I'm barely making it from room to room. And I hope you don't yell at me. Thank you for waiting. So let me script this out with you. And I'm curious as to, as to how you would say certain things and how would you approach certain things? So you've got somebody who presents with abdominal pain. They've been in triage for five hours. Now they're back in the room and you know you don't know if they're okay with it. You don't know if they're mad. You walk in the room What's the first thing that you say? And then I'm going to do some follow-up lines. First thing I do is I walk in the room with a smile and some positive energy. And I say, hi, I'm Dr. Bright. And then I say, thank you for waiting. I know that you've waited quite some time to see me. And I want you to know that I appreciate it. What can I do to help you today? Well, let me tell you that whoever checked me in was a total ass. And I don't know how you have somebody working like that in your emergency room. As an aside, I think as a physician, it would be natural for me to want to either get defensive and defend who I'm with or throw somebody under the bus. I do neither of those things. I basically, in communication education speak, I parking lot it. It's a non-factor in terms of why they're actually here. So don't get into it. I say, I'm terribly sorry that that happened, but I know that you're uncomfortable and I'm here now and you're very important to me. Let's talk about what I can do to help you. Well, what are you going to do about that person? I mean, that can't go unnoticed. Let's figure out how you and I can get you feeling better. And then once we've gotten you feeling better, if you'd still like to get into that, I'm happy to talk to you more about it or refer you to our church nurse so we can, you know, look into that more. And how can you make people wait for so long? I mean, don't you know that I'm sick? I do know that you're sick. And I want you to know that I appreciate how long you had to wait. It's been, unfortunately, a very busy day. But you and I are together now, and let's focus on how we can help you out. I think a lot of people who are, believe that they're being rational want to rationalize it as, look around, you're not the only sick person here, or I've been tending to some other sick person, or we had a pediatric trauma, or XYZ. Guess what? Your patient does not care. Moreover, it is not their job to care. And that's where I think we have a problem, is we think that they should care, because we're used to retriaging based on acuity, but the patient's not. They're worried about their symptoms. Let me challenge you on that. Say I've had a multi-trauma and somebody's been waiting for a couple hours or, or whatever. I'll say, hey, I'm sorry that you've been waiting. We had a couple of traumas come in and it totally took all my attention and the staff's attention, but I'm here now. And I found that more often than not, 
people are understanding and they're even more understanding when their door is open and they see all the frenetic activity. I mean, if somebody's going to be pissed off, they're going to be pissed off. But sometimes if things are crazy or I'm really involved in a case, I will let them know without violating HIPAA that it's just me here and all of my attention was on this patient. I couldn't attend to you, but now I'm attending to you. I know that that works sometimes as well. We all also anecdotally know about same experiences where you've been coding somebody for 45 minutes and anecdotally the patient next door is pissed that they don't have a blanket. I guess my question is why open yourself up to that in the first place? Because if I'm playing devil's advocate to what you said, Rob, it can very easily be perceived by somebody who may not be so altruistic and and wanting to give to the greater good as, well, why aren't you staffed well enough where you can take care of everybody at the same time? Why are you basically telling me that somebody else was more important than me? And I'm not saying that that's how everybody perceives it, but that's certainly how some patients perceive it. And I know everybody listening has experienced a patient who has perceived it that way. So why set that trap for yourself in the first place if you don't know who that patient is and how they're likely to react? Instead, you own it. I'm here now. I want to help you. I appreciate that you've been waiting. The more you can be positive about it without pulling in other variables that you expect that they're going to care about when it's not their job to care, the better I think things are going to be. So I've been kind of escalating this, but now I want to de-escalate the unhappy patient. And sometimes they're really vocal. I think more often than not, they're kind of, it's just a quiet storm and you can see the magma just bubbling up and getting ready to explode. And we've been talking about weights. That's usually the main thing that they're mad about, or that you don't have a diagnosis, that they're in pain and they haven't gotten any pain meds, even though they've been to the ED 50 times for pain-related complaints, or maybe they came in with a knee sprain and you're not going to order an MRI or an antibiotics for a viral infection. I mean, that all of these things where I guess you're not meeting their expectation, but now they are DEFCON 1 angry. How do I de-escalate? One of the things that you brought up is that you are aware that the patient is getting more amped. And I would argue that a lot of times we are so closed off to emotion because we're playing it cognitive that we don't even recognize the nonverbal or even verbal cues that things are going wrong. And so that already puts you way behind the eight ball. If you come in looking for and open to nonverbal cues, you're going to, I think, be able to figure out a lot sooner that things may not be going well. Really own up to that emotion you feel in the room. You know, we we learned about projection at some point during medical school and you can feel it. It's real. Like when you walk into a room and, and there's a palpable energy that feels uncomfortable, recognize it, own it, name it for your patient and say, ma'am, I can't help but notice you're looking a little upset right now or a little anxious right now and see what happens. I think validating their emotion is really an important step to understanding what's going on. I think a lot of physicians will express that they're worried about naming the wrong emotion. And I would argue, and I've seen it argued elsewhere, that as long as you're naming an emotion, I think that's the important part. Because if it's the wrong one, your patient will tell you. And that's very valuable information. In terms of de-escalating, I think you need to be willing to just be quiet and listen instead of defend yourself or defend your health system. Figure out, hey, what's bothering you right now? And then be willing to just listen to what is in fact bothering them. And a lot of times I think we miss the mark there. And once you get that information, I think that you'll know how to sidestep and readdress the situation. In terms of MRIs and testing and opiates and antibiotics and all the things that we perceive to be a huge issue with 
patient experience and patient satisfaction and this perceived need to pander to our patients, there is a true skill in resetting expectations and delivering the no. Nobody in this world responds to a hard no. Just nope, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. That's not indicated. People don't respond well to that. They need to be given an alternative. Ma'am, I understand why you think you need an MRI for your shoulder pain. An MRI isn't really indicated right now, and here's why. What I'd love to do, though, is get you in with my friend over at Sports Medicine. He's awesome. He's a doctor for the Detroit Lions, and he loves taking care of shoulders. I can help get you an appointment, and he can get you checked out and get you the things that you need. That's a lot different than giving a phone number and saying, well, good luck. Let me know how it goes. That's super powerful, what you just said. And it's interesting, when I was listening to that, I was just kind of putting myself in the patient's shoes. I was like, oh, wow, this guy's really taking care of me versus uh, he's just not wanting to deal with this. What was your philosophy as you were saying those two things? My philosophy is if I were in their shoes, I'd be upset too if I waited three hours for a test that for whatever reason I believe I needed and then somebody wasn't going to give it to me after seeing me for two minutes. I'm really fascinated by this power dichotomy that happens in medicine. Patients come in with some need or some expectation or some desire and we basically decide if we're going to click the right buttons and give it to them. And a lot of that is subjective. Some of it's evidence-based. But in the end, we as physicians have never really gone through any sort of training or discussions or education about how to deliver that no. It's easy when they actually need the things that they want. Sure, I'll I'll do whatever, you know, and that's no problem because then they're getting what they want. Let's explore a little bit more how you say no. And I think the one of the more common things is someone comes in with a clear URI, maybe their sinus is a little congested, and they say, every year I get the cold, I get a sinus infection, my doctor prescribes me a Z-Pack, you know, I'm traveling from out of town, I need a Z-Pack because I have sinusitis. You know, but they're like a week into it. Yeah, maybe they have a little bit of sinus inflammation. And you know the only thing that that Z-Pack's going to do is harm them. And the reason that they get better after that is because they're probably just going to get better anyway. And they're pretty insistent. How do you address that? They don't really want the Z-Pack. What they want is to feel better. And they've been led to believe that the Z-Pack is the way to do it. If you're going to do nothing, that's your prerogative and certainly within your practice pattern and best evidence and whatever. And that's fine. But one of my attendings once told me, the less you're going to do for a patient, the more time you're going to actually have to spend sitting down, talking them through why. The less that you talk to them, the more you're going to have to do testing. The less testing you do, the more you're going to have to be willing to talk it out because nobody responds to, well, sorry, take Tylenol and have a nice day. Like most people actually know they can go to the local pharmacy and get a Tylenol or a Dayquil or a NyQuil. They just want to feel better. And we've all had that cold or flu-like syndrome that makes you feel like you got hit by a train. It's miserable. You need to acknowledge it and say, these are things that are actually going to help you feel better. And if you really want to talk about antibiotics and best practices and choosing wisely, Go nuts, but then you're really getting into the weeds in a way that most of your patients are not really going to understand or care about anyway. It can't be a hard no. It's got to be a willingness to give them an alternative so they can help ride it out. Some patients, no matter how savvy you are with communication, I guess not even patients, some human beings are just going to be angry regardless of what you say. And they're going to threaten to call the nurse administrator. They're going to call a lawyer. And they are just ballistic and no amount of charm is going to calm them. How do you salvage that? If they are what we call air messaging, right? That amplification is an air message that they have just not been heard. 
whatever emotion they're putting out there has just not been validated or heard by our cognitive mind in a way that has effectively diffused this situation. And so if they are that upset, first of all, it's worth saying, what is it that is making you this upset and what can I do to help you? And if it's, forget you, Dr. Bright, I just want my friggin' Z-Pack so I can get out of here, then if that's not your practice pattern, you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, I don't believe that this antibiotic is actually the best way to help you. These are the things that I think that you need in order to feel better. If you'd like to speak to our charge nurse or our service excellence department or our chairman or whoever, here's their contact information. And you just have to agree to move on at that point. Not every single one is going to go perfect. And then what I do is I'm going to make sure that my documentation on that chart is pretty dang good and not in a judgmental, subjective way, but just in an objective way. And if I really think it's likely to escalate up the chain, I may even give my director or chairman a heads up about the case just so they are aware and they're not blindsided and can better help support you when they're ultimately having to do some form of service recovery. And that's just the nature of the beast sometimes, but I personally believe that that is very few and far between, at least in my own practice and and the way in which I interact with my patients. When we're talking about things like de-escalating upset patients, you know, we're kind of out of the realm of crafting a positive experience for our patients and ourselves, and really into the realm of damage control and recovery. And Justin mirrors something a good friend of the pod, Dyke Drummond, has coined the universal upset patient protocol. And to summarize this universal upset patient protocol, we are not trained in conflict resolution. You know, we, we had verbal judo on episode one, right? You know, those, those things can, can help. But really, angry patients are a reality to any medical practice. I don't care how good you are. I, ha- I have a buddy who's listening to this who is a saint. Even he has patients from time to time get mad at him. So in this upset patient protocol, Dyke has six steps in the conversation with the upset patient. Step one, same as Justin said, notice that the patient is upset. You take a deep breath. You get present, you sit down, and you say, hey, you seem upset. The next step is to invite them to talk. Hey, tell me about it. Tell me what happened. Show empathy or compassion for the patient's situation and apologize. Something like, wow, I am so sorry you're feeling this way. It sounds so frustrating. I'm sorry this is happening to you. And then find out What's their agenda? I mean, key, key, key right here. This is the secret sauce. Ask them, what would you like me to do to help you? Sometimes they just want someone to listen. Sometimes they want something specific, but often it's just, hey, just listen, hear me out. Let me get this off my chest. Next step is determine what you're willing to address. You might not be willing to do what they're wanting to do, saying, hey, here's what I'd like to do next. And finally, thank them. Thank you so much for sharing your feelings with me. It's really important we understand each other completely. I will say, having used this in the emergency department in real time, I found it incredibly effective. Now, the scripting here might not be something that is natural to you if you want to use it. You know, make it something that makes sense, you know, that those things might sound kind of clunky. All right, I kind of get the vibe. I kind of get the steps, but I'm going to say the things that are going to come naturally for me, not like I'm reading off of some kind of a cue card. It doesn't work for everybody. When I spoke with Dyke about this, he said, you know, it's about 15% of the patients, even though this is the universal upset patient protocol, doesn't work universally. But I'll say it is the best framework 
I found and put into practice on doing the damage control after someone's upset. And now I will say, congratulations. Give yourself a high five. You have listened to a complete episode of Stimulus. And now you're part of the team. And what most team members do is subscribe to the show because then it automatically downloads to your podcatcher and you don't have to use that valuable brain power to remember to go and grab it. We hope you've enjoyed today's stimulus and maybe even gotten something that you can take with you to apply to your work or your life. And to that point, all those little details that you you, you want to go back and grab, you can find those in the complete show notes on our website. And if you want to go deeper into any of the challenges you're facing in your professional life, you want to see what our one-on-one coaching is all about, on our website, you can click the link that says coaching and sign up for a free introductory coaching session. And until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.